Zone podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hello, Kurt. Pep, man, it's almost Christmas. It's that feels like you. Christmas just getting to be with you. <laughs> well, I said to people, I, I said to you earlier, like, I love that sweater you're wearing and that if you didn't have it, somebody should get it for you for Christmas. I and appreciate if that. not, they should get it for me. It's a nice sweater. I like it. it yeah. is nice. Yeah, I can yeah. tell. It's great. So we are here in episode 10 of season three of the Being Known podcast. And um, if you're just joining us today for the first time, then I want to inform you that we are going through Dr. Kurt Thompson's newest book, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. Uh, we have done a chapter a week for this season, and today is our final chapter of the book. Um, we will be back next week with a wrap of the whole season, but today we are finishing up on chapter 10, and chapter 10 is Practicing for Heaven, and it's a really good chapter. It gives us some practical things and another great story about how, you know, these confessional communities are impacting people and creating beauty in the world. And Kurt, it's just, uh, I've loved this book mm. and I've, I've, mm. I, I love this chapter. So mm. let's jump in. Yeah, right on. Well, you know, this, uh, this, this notion of practicing for heaven, you know, it, it, uh, the, the, the title of the chapter struck me because I, I think of how often in our theology we sometimes think that we're just kind of like we're living here, we're, we're doing whatever it is that we do here, and we're somehow, you know, kind of when when heaven comes, uh, every, like it's going to be just like all, all different and it's going to be magical and there's going to be no more work, no more effort, no more like, and it's going to be like completely different as if like this world has got no continual connection to the next world in any way, shape, or form. As if like I'm just trying to get there by the work and the life that I live here, as opposed to actually consider that if heaven comes in all of its fullness, the way the scriptures describe it, and we that we get a glimpse of when we read things like uh, the great divorce that C.S. Lewis writes, and where he paints this picture of heaven being this place where the fruit that fell from the trees was so heavy because it was so real, so dense that people couldn't pick it up, that the grass blades were so real that it pierced through people's, it was sharp enough to pierce through people's feet because it was so real, real. and the people themselves were so fragile. They were so not yet real. And there is a sense in which, I, I remember that, you know, how many times, you know, you've talked about the irises that, I mean, the lilacs, sorry, I confuse the lilacs of Van Gogh. Sometimes we can have encounters with, paintings, with art, with nature that is so overwhelming that we can barely take it in. And that's this world. And we, it, my, my, my sense is that what we are doing here in this world is that we are working to practice, to anticipate the great, solid, real world of beauty and goodness that is coming and that if I'm not practicing for what's coming, when it gets here, I, like it may crush me in the same way that Lewis's characters in The Great Divorce had such a hard time tolerating the color, the density of the world 
in which they found themselves. And, you know, when we talk about our longings and our desire, and we talk about our desire to create and sense and experience and become beauty, we might even say that even our desires pale in comparison to the desire that we will sense and image and feel and encounter when the new heaven and the new earth arrives. And so what do we do to practice for that? And, you know, there, there are you know, a couple stories that we talk about in this chapter, but, you know, the, the hard deck on which this all got me to thinking was this passage in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, where mm-hmm. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, and different, different gospels have different versions of this, but where, where he says, at the judgment, everyone will have to give an account of every idle word that they've spoken. Every idle word. And I'm thinking, I'm in trouble. I mean, like, I, like I, don't, I am not looking forward to that moment. I'm not looking forward to uh, standing in front of Jesus or sitting with him beside a fire, with a fireside chat, no matter, like, because, you know, you imagine, well, we're going to have this conversation in front of lots of people. Yeah. And he's going to say, well, why did you say that? And where, what was that about? And so forth. There's this sense of, like, I'm going to be shamed in front of everybody. I'm going to have to give an account for every idle word. And then I got to thinking, what if, though? What if... What Jesus is intending to do is, in many respects, what we actually try to do in these confessional communities. What if his conversation is going to be more akin to asking, well, where were you when that happened? And what did you want when that happened? And were you aware of the price that you were going to have to pay? Were you able to drink? Were you aware of the cup you were going to have to drink? And where was the shame that was lurking? This sense in which... He's not intending to shame us in the account giving, but his intention is to leave no stone of unfinished, like no no unfinished business covered under any stone. He's going to turn them all over in order to be able to become fully differentiated, fully linked, fully vulnerable, and in the absence of shame such that the accounting itself at the judgment is something that is getting me ready to get into the game of the real story that is just beginning with the new heaven and the new earth. And as I thought about that, this notion that the accounting that we're going to give, you know, God came to Adam and said, where are you? He was requesting an accounting. And Adam was too afraid to enter into the conversation. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, there's just one thing. He looked at him and loved him, and he missed the look of love. He couldn't stay in the conversation. He couldn't enter into the accounting. Our pain, our woundedness, our traumas that lead to all of my coping strategies are ways for me to avoid entering into the accounting of all my idle, silent words that I'm using to cope with all of my wounds, that I, some of which I don't even know that I know about. And so the theme of this chapter really is a way to invite us to imagine that all the work that has come before 
is a manner of expanding our imagination. There's that, there's that phrase again, expanding our imagination to consider that the new heaven and new earth that is coming is going to give us the possibility to account for things in such a way that these confessional communities give us an opportunity to practice and get ready for. Yeah, the, 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 um, I love this, that you've talked about this practicing being human, mm. you know, mm. and, and in these communities, the people are learning to tell their stories so much more truly with one another so that they, they can get to a place where their shame attendant, as you, as you name, mm. Uh, mm. Is, is no longer driving the car and mm-hmm. um, they've got support of people around them that they take with them uh, in life and then they are prepared to create beauty out of out of these places mm-hmm. um, you had there's a story of Francine Francine mm-hmm. and Andrew in the in mm-hmm. the chapter that uh, mm-hmm. you know Francine was a, a woman who was um, single and I think came got into therapy because she thought she was getting to therapy because she was single and all the things that came out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she got into a community group and she mentioned it early on that she had been a painter. She had done some painting, but she hadn't, hadn't done it for years. And someone else that was in the group, Andrew, who had his own sort of beauty and creativity that he'd been suppressing and he was uh he had done some piano playing mm-hmm. um and francine andrew kept kept pursuing this idea of francine why you know what do you, what are you going to do about this painting when are you going to you know <laughs> go back to this when it, you know and he kept bringing it up and kept bringing it up and between that and all the other interpersonal connections that were happening in the group that were helping francine to, to, I think, to have a better understanding of why she was there, but also giving her the courage to go back into her art um, mm-hmm. and wiping away the shame that she was feeling about mm-hmm. everything. And she goes, one day she walks in with this painting into the group <laughs> that she had just completed and just blew everybody's socks off. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and as, as, as you mentioned, you know, Andrew had his own thing going, and there's a sense yeah. in which it often happens in these communities when, when someone says to another, gosh, I would love for you to fill in the blank. I'd love for you to do this painting. I would love for you to tell your boss that you need more time off. I would love, I would love for you to tell your father to stop, whatever. Because if you do it, that means I can do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Because if I it, can see you do it, that means I can do it. It is exactly it, it is exactly the case, and it is it is striking how often this happens. It just repeats itself over and over and over again, and just about every time it does, we then offer the question, and in this case, Andrew and Andrew, if she were to do this, how would that be helpful for you? Because we never ask anybody to do anything that is not about us, that does not have some connection to my longings. Right. When I want my children to do things that I think is really for them, like, no, like, dude, like, it is about, like, uh, yeah, then I, I'm going to be, I, it's, I'm going to have a better sense of being an effective father because my kids are now being effective adults in the world. And, right. And otherwise, it's, it's because otherwise it's, it's, you know, it's that shame wolf at my door. Mm-hmm. Well, if you'd only done this or done less of that or whatever. 
And so this whole thing of the kind of, you know, we, we, we draw on, you know, the physics of complex systems and how some portion over here is always affecting some portion over here in the system in ways that we can't always predict. And Andrew's kind of like continual kind of being like a gentle gadfly with her. And he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't irritating about it, but he, he was gen- genuinely curious and he really wanted and, I, and, and, you know, one of the other things is that Francine was, you know, at first, um, you know, she was just surprised. Like, I, I, you know, she hadn't thought about it for a long time because she'd practiced putting it away because right. there was so much sadness and shame that was associated with it. She just practiced it, putting it away. And the very, at first, the very interest in it, it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like there's, Andrew had to keep coming back around and back around until it became clear to her that the painting was the thing that was motivating Andrew to drawing Andrew to connection with her. It was the connection with Andrew and with the community Mm -hmm. that drained her shame account in such a way that she became more awake to, alert to, attuned to that part of her heart that had always longed to express herself with her painting. (sighs) It wasn't like, I'm no longer interested. It's the interest has been buried under the rubble of my trauma and my shame. And as the rubble is cleared, it's like digging for gold. It's not like the gold isn't there. It's like, and when it shows itself. And so she walks in one day with this painting of course, unannounced, right? She, you know, I finally, Andrew's like, oh, I wonder if she'll ever show. And she walks in and it's true. Like people didn't have words, you know, cause we, we think, you know, people, yeah, yeah. You're a painter. You're, you paint things right. like whatever, whatever. And then, and, and, and then like, it's just like, uh, wow. And this eventually, as, as readers will see, this eventually led toward her doing more and more and more with her artwork that is now in other places. Yeah, I, I I love that. I love that the beauty goes outside and beyond the group, and yeah. the beauty impacts the world because of the work that was done in the group, because right. of because of her being able to release a lot of that shame, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because of her feeling connected to Andrew and others in the group and being impacted by them. Right. This beauty was created out of that, but it wasn't hoarded and kept. It was put out into mm. the world and, mm. and, and, and has impacted the world mm-hmm. with beauty. Other people are putting themselves in the line of oncoming beauty because of what happened in that room. Right. It's incredible. Yeah, and I, it, it is incredible. And I, I would say, Pepper, it's, it's not like, you know, three years ago or 10 years ago or whenever, like there was some planned vision of like, oh, if we construct these groups in this way, this is what will happen. There is a sense in which... We are called by God to respond to him in this moment. I'm not called by God to like somehow take care of my entire life all at once. He's asking me, let's have an accounting right now of right now. I don't want you to be burdened with like all the story that you're going to have to tell that you're afraid that you're going to have to like unpack and be ashamed of. I want us to have an encounter right now. Let's have this account. And this is what Andrew is doing with Francine over and over and over again. And in these small moments, inertia builds. And before you know it, again, this geometric change that goes out into the world happens. 
actions. Because of people being willing to be transparent, being willing to be vulnerable, differentiated, and linked. Moment by moment by moment by moment. And it doesn't just lead to that kind of artwork. It leads to marriages that are transformed. It leads to work situations that are transformed. Sometimes it, it leads to, you know, the, the first stages of this that are really, that are really painful. I'm, I'm thinking of, of some people that we're working with right now who, you know, these are adults who are in the room who have, you know, families of origin that still have patterns of painful brokenness. And one of the first things that has to happen before they realize beauty and goodness is to stop the carnage in their family of origin. And even having the courage to stop things, it's kind of like I come upon my studio and my studio somehow, you know, I mean, you live in Kentucky. Yeah. And as we record this, we're recording on the backside of a week that, you know, there are no words for what happened right. in Kentucky this week. Yeah. 200 miles, that tornado The devastation is, is just, I mean, I, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. No. You know? And so the whole notion, I mean, who, 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 who's, going to, who's going to imagine beauty anywhere? Like, no. I mean, you... Uh, it, 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 and it's into these spaces that Jesus comes. Hmm. And just like with Andrew and Francine, Jesus doesn't force the pace. He doesn't demand that we be ready to do this quickly. You see pictures of the devastation in Kentucky. You see people standing in front of what was once their house or their community or the candle factory. There's nowhere to go. And it's into these spaces, not just geographically where disasters have happened, but in our living rooms and bedrooms and kitchens and our boardrooms and our churches such that the initial parts of creating beauty sometimes begins with a very slow, deliberate, patient, persevering cleanup maneuver. Yeah. We set limits and boundaries and we say no more of this and no more of that because we want to create space to create beauty. But before we do, we have to stop what's happening that has been so traumatizing. And these confessional communities become the crucibles in which people gather the courage to begin to do that. But they do so by naming their own fears and terrors right there in the room. Yeah. Francine, Francine for her part, couldn't imagine the joy that would come from her art. Somebody else had to imagine it for her until hers could catch up. Yeah. You know, these, um, the picture that you, the picture that you use of uh, the Kintsugi art just so embodies this whole process, mm -hmm. right? The, the 
the breaking, the pottery that's broken, and then put back together, sealed with gold, hmm. made more beautiful than it was from the start. Hmm. Hmm. Just feels like a great picture of what happens in these groups with, you know, the brokenness, the parts of us that we think are the ugliest. Right. That there's no place for. And when we expose them hmm. and we do the work on them, hmm. they become the most beautiful part of all. And that's where yeah. the beauty comes out. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, I know that um, I, I would love for you to spend some time now talking a little bit about practically, mm-hmm. you know, you talk in this chapter about the possibility of people, you know, doing these things, doing these mm-hmm. confessional mm-hmm. communities. And so mm-hmm. I would love for you to talk a little bit about that yeah. before we yeah. finish up today. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it doesn't take very long to talk about the basic structure of how we operate these confessional communities. It will take longer for us to put them into practice. And we will be, let me just say ahead of time that, you know, physicians are generally more helpful for patients when they alert them to side effects of the medication or interventions ahead of time so the people are not shocked or surprised, caught off guard by them when they experience them. But I, w- I would say that, uh, first of all, just uh, to say that for those of you who are interested in these kinds of things, there, there are two things that I would uh, invite you to consider. One is the Center for Being Known, the nonprofit that I started a number of years ago, is beginning to make arrangement for uh, supporting these kinds of groups in their most basic and fundamental ways. And so you can go to thecbk.org and find out more about that. We are creating space for people to begin to sign up for these and to, uh, and we're, we're, we're in the early stages of this. So if you were to go to that website, you're not going to find a quick way to do that, but we're going to be, we can, you know, you can sign up to get your, your email on our list and make it possible for you to learn more about that there through the, the Center for Being Known. And then the other is our private practice here in Virginia uh, is running more explicit and deeper trainings that we're providing for uh, clinicians and non-clinicians alike on how to run this. And so if you were to uh, look up the, the, my, my practice name now is New Story Behavioral Health, so New Story Behavioral Health with Kurt Thompson, MD. Uh, if you look that up, uh, you can check out the opportunities for training for confessional community, the confessional community collective, which we're doing. So those are two resources that I would point our listeners to. And then when we, practically speaking, when we do this, we really uh, say that, uh, of course, there uh, we, we could get you know into, into more detail about this. But for right now, I would say that to form a confessional community, you would want to have at least three people in a group, three to maybe six people in a group at the most. And these are people that you trust. These are people, they're not, we're not just randomly choosing people off the street. These are people that we trust and people that we would want to be able to tell our stories to. And we have a particular storytelling liturgy that we enter to that basically you give each member an opportunity to tell their story in 20 minutes. And then we give the listeners an opportunity to reflect what they feel and of course, this takes some getting used to because when you tell me your story, I want to ask you a bunch of questions and I want to tell you what I think about it and give you reasons why you sh- how you can fix your problems and so forth. But we're not doing that. We're really just taking a few minutes to respond when you tell me your story. I'm like, gosh, I felt angry. I felt sad. I felt joy. These are the things that I feel. And then we give the listener, I mean, we give the speaker a chance to re-reflect what it's like for them to hear people reflecting. 
And then we give the listeners one more time to reflect back to the speaker, what it was like for us to hear how our words impacted you. Each person gets an opportunity to do this storytelling liturgy, and of course there's more detail that we could offer about that. But as we go forward, we encourage groups to meet weekly. We encourage them to meet for at least 90 minutes to give everybody time to do this. And then we do some very practical things, and there are just three or four that we name. Number one, we come into each group, and each person wants to name, what are my longings? What are my desires? What are my desires? And getting used to naming that. This is what I really want. Number two, what is the thing that I long to create? Not just what do I long for, but what do I long to create? And sometimes it's like, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I want to create. That's because we don't practice much doing that. Along with this, we then want to name our griefs. What are the things that bring me pain? What are the things that I'm sad about? What are the harder things that I'm experiencing? Whether that's about my own internal life, whether it's about my family, whatever is it, whatever it is, what are my longings? What are my griefs? And then we say that, and, and here's where we can use the book as a guide, as a guide for us. We practice dwelling, gazing, and inquiring. What does it mean to then practice some of those things that we re- that you read about in those chapters? And when we inquire, we're asking those four questions over and over and over again. Where are you? What do you want? Can you drink the cup? What is, what's, what's, where's, that's another way of getting at the grief, getting at what's painful, what's the suffering like. And where is their shame? Do you love me? Where is their shame that's, that's left over? And we would say that the byproduct of all this is the formation of a community that is as beautiful as what we're trying to create in our own lives outside of the community. We like to remind people that this is going to be done imperfectly, that we trust and assume that all of this activity is done in the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit, and that all of our words are a function of prayer. We are trusting that Jesus is in the middle of this, and that it is he who is holding all this process together, including the things that we're most frightened about, until the new heaven and earth arrives, at which point we can enter into that practice of giving a full account without fear and without shame, knowing that everyone, including Jesus himself, is holding our gaze in theirs. No shame will be part of the conversation, and beauty will be all that remains, not just that we will see and sense and image and taste, but they will go on to create as well. Awesome. I just want to remind you that it is thecbk.org. Go there and sign up to get uh, information from them as they start rolling out more information on these confessional communities and how you can be a part of that. And New Story Behavioral Health is the other one. And I'm I'm excited that they're going to be doing these trainings and, you know, just excited for all the beauty that's going to be coming out of this, right? I mean, you, you think about how much beauty can just come out of one confessional community and like like just gremlins, you know, <laughs> you know, it just keeps growing and going out there and impacting the world for the positive, getting, eliminating yeah. shame. Yeah. Kurt, thank you so much. Um, mm. Appreciate you so much. Appreciate this book. And we will be back next week with our wrap for the season. Right on. Excited about that. And um, those of you that are watching us on YouTube, Amy's going to join us now and we're going to have a little bonus time. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Love Pat. you. You bet. Love you too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. 
Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend, tell all of your friends, and please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.